to, you could go down kind of the rabbit hole of fascinating arguments and evidence when it comes to proving the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. There's like a whole world of that, which is cool and fascinating. Um, we, we've said this a bunch of times since I've been your pastor, but the Bible makes it super clear that without the resurrection, this whole thing is meaningless. Uh, And and so if the resurrection isn't true, historically true that Jesus bodily was raised from the dead, then even Paul himself in our own sacred text says that we should be pitied above all people for believing this lie. Uh, Now, don't get me wrong, going down that rabbit hole, it's a good rabbit hole to go down. It can help you, it can grow your ability to think uh, critically about evidence and all those kind of things and bolster your faith in the resurrection. In fact, uh, I brought this book up here, which is the one I dropped and not my Bible, so it's okay. It's just N.T. Wright. It's not the Bible. But this book is called The Resurrection of the Son of God by N.T. Wright. You can see it's not a small read. It's not a one-sitting read, but it's a really good read, and uh, I'd recommend that one to you. That's my copy that I have right now, so if anybody wants to borrow it, go ahead. Um, I remember reading that book um, many, many years ago in Bible college, and so uh, I was thumbing through. This isn't the copy I had then, but it's the copy I have now, and so I was thumbing through it. And uh, man, it's just, it's so good. It's so good. Um, and again, this kind of book and those kind of debates over the facts of the resurrection, the historical facts of the resurrection, really, they do have an important place for us in our world. They're important. But what John gives us in chapter 20, we're going to be in verses 1 through 18 today, is more testimony than argument. He's giving us more story, more narrative. It's about the story of the people who encountered the resurrected Jesus that day, then about the logical arguments about it. So if you're just joining us this morning, or maybe you're just joining us online, that's where we are in the Gospel of John. We have made it through the crucifixion, and now in chapter 20, we're picking it up at the resurrection. So we we have skipped over a few things, but don't worry, we'll hit it at Easter time, right? And we'll talk about the death and the burial and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus very often, but that's where we are in the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verses 1 through 18, is more testimony than argument. And so God gave us brains. He gave us an entire portion of our sacred text we call wisdom literature, right? To engage that brain and to think critically. Uh, So our minds are not off the hook when it comes to our faith. This is not blind faith. uh, But as we've said before, there's a couple different ways to know something. Logical, point-by-point arguments are one way and are a good way. But... What we have here in this part of John is what we might call, again, testimony or narrative. And most often, this kind of knowledge works at kind of the visceral gut level part of our knowing, right? Like how you spouses know that you love your spouse. Like if I said, well, how do you know you love your spouse? You'd probably go like, uh, well, they do these, but you can't really get to it. You just know you do. And that's a level of kind of knowledge, 
And so John in this chapter is going to testify that Jesus was raised from the dead. And then what John does in this chapter as well is to present the world as the kind of place where an executed man who was dead, not in a coma, not kind of asleep, but dead, comes walking out of the tomb and speaks peace to his followers, to his people. So I'm going to ask Rod to come, and he's going to read the text for us today. And uh, I promised him I would turn his mic on, so I'm going to keep my, keep my promises. And he's going to read to us from John 20, 1 to 18. John 20, 1 through 18. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, whom, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed, for as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, Tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. 
Thanks, Rod. So John 20, 1 to 18. So the first thing we want to do is we're going to take them in sections, 1 through 10 and then 11 through 18. And so um, reading that section of the text, here's what we see in, in 1 through 10. Here, here's kind of what is clear. Uh, it's clear um, that, that neither Mary Magdalene nor Peter or the other disciple who is mentioned there, which is John, uh, expected that tomb to be empty. Right? That, that's kind of what we can see there. And, and now, here's the thing. For us, this story, if you're part of the church, this is like a super familiar story. You've been hearing this story, if you're like me and grew up in the church since you were a little baby. Uh, I, I am just old enough to remember flannel graphs, and I remember empty tomb flannel graphs with the, the, the stone rolled away. And so I've heard this story a million times, right? And so for me, I'm like, why would they be surprised? But that's because I've heard this story so many times and I wasn't there. And so um, we, we kind of get inoculated to, to this idea that they are surprised by what is happening here, that they don't expect this to happen. And so if we can clear away, if you have familiarity with this story, the fact that we already know that the tomb was empty when we started reading this section, we can begin to feel at that visceral level how surprising this tomb was to everyone. And so think about how these followers of Jesus must have felt. They, they knew what had happened, that what had happened to Jesus was not right, that he had been through this unjust trial. He had been unjustly killed by the state. And so all of that was unjust. But whatever else they might have been thinking in the face of that injustice, what is evident here is they don't seem to have expected Jesus to do what he repeatedly claimed he was going to do. Uh, rise from the dead on the third day. He said it a bunch of times. Here are some of the places he made that claim in the other Gospels. Matthew 16, Matthew 17, Matthew 20, Mark 8, Mark 9, Mark 10, Luke 9, Luke 18. There's a ton of places where Jesus says, I'm going to rise from the dead. And so for us, it's easy, and for me, it's easy to sort of, when I think about the fact that they're surprised at this, it's easy to subconsciously kind of judge these followers of Jesus. Like, oh, I wouldn't have not believed. I would have definitely believed. If I showed up and the tomb was empty, I would have been like, oh yeah, he said he was going to, I wouldn't be surprised. But again, remember all that's happened. I think it's likely, right? It's, it's pretty good to think that it's likely that at least many of these followers of Jesus, if not all of them, at least the ones recorded here in John, are shocked, they're discouraged, they're probably ashamed of themselves for what just went down with Jesus Right? Leaving Jesus when his hour came, they're concerned about their own safety or the authority is going to come for me too. Like, what's going to happen? And, and so, uh, Mary is Mary Magdalene seems to be the only one who just can't stay away. She, we, we see in Luke 8 2 about her that, that seven demons had gone out of her, that she stood by the mother of Jesus as he died. We saw that last week in John 19. So, she has this very particular relationship with the ministry of Jesus, and we see the family of Jesus. And so she's the one now in John 20 who comes to the tomb in the pre-dawn hours of the first day of the week. And so she's not acting so much. I don't think she's acting at a logical level here. And this isn't a statement about men or women. This is just people. She's not acting at a level of like logically putting together what Jesus said. She is probably acting from her kind of gut relationship level with Jesus. Just, I just, I want to see for myself. I just can't stand to, to not see for myself what's going on and, and, and go to the tomb and honor him. And it seems that she's drawn to the tomb to weep, to pray, all those things that you've heard before. And I'm guessing she probably doesn't have much of a plan beyond that. 
She's not thinking, well, what if he's actually not there? Right? She doesn't have that thought. It's not even on her radar. And she's so shocked to find what she finds. Verse 1. Now, the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark, and she saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. And so she, she, she's so shocked to find this that she runs to Peter and the beloved disciple, right, who's most likely John himself, which is that's just funny to me that John calls himself that. And what does she say? She says, essentially, somebody moved the body. Somebody stole the body to, and taken it to an unknown place. Now, again, what does this show us? These words are, are evidence to us that Jesus' resurrection is not even like in her mind right then. She's, it's not one of, well, maybe he did resurrect or maybe somebody stole the body. She only says the one. She thinks someone has taken the body. She, she probably thinks maybe it's the Jewish authorities, the Roman authorities, maybe the coalition of those two that were empowered and conspired to crucify Jesus. But evidently, she's not thinking that Jesus has been raised from the dead, at least not right here at the beginning of John 20. Now, Mary Magdalene is not one of the 12 named disciples, right? She's not on the inside of the inside. She's a woman who was part of the, the many who traveled with Jesus and who provided for the ministry of Jesus out of their own means. We see this in Luke 8, first part of that chapter. She's literally a financial supporter of Jesus, which means she was likely around all the time when he was teaching, which means she almost certainly, we should assume, she heard Jesus speak of how he'd be killed and then rise on the third day. And yet from the time of her arrival at the tomb here in John 20 to her running back to Peter and John, and then in her return to the tomb and lingering there, as we saw in our text, 11 to 15, she has only one theory in her mind, apparently from this text, right? That somebody has removed the body. She doesn't seem, to, it hasn't clicked in her mind yet. They're like, oh, wait, Jesus said this was going to happen. It, it it's not conceptualized in her mind the possibility that he had been raised from the dead, which again, he said so many times. Now, when I read this and I kind of dig into this reality that these followers of Jesus are having such a hard time coming to grips with this evidence of the resurrection that's right in their face, I actually think it's encouraging. It's encouraging because in my walk with Jesus, I can see that, that these people in here are just like me. Like I fit right in. Uh, forgetful, lacking faith, that's who I am. And that also means, though, that I'm also just like these people in that I'm loved deeply by Jesus in that faithless lack of memory state, right? Loved by Jesus so deeply that he would give himself for me even when he knows that I'm going to forget what he told me yesterday. That's encouraging to me when I read these stories. Now, again, what we see next it is Peter and the beloved disciple, again, John, that they both start running to the tomb as they hear from Mary Magdalene. But the beloved disciple, it says, outpaces Peter and arrives first. Now, this is one of the times when I think we see the human agency. This is my interpretation, but we see the human agency in inspiration and in writing the Bible. That little tidbit of him outpacing Peter has no benefit to us or to, to John, other than being able to claim that he won a foot race, which is kind of like what I like to do with Devin when I remind her that I could still beat her in a foot race. Right, Devin? <laughs> I warned her that joke was coming today. <laughs> but it really has no benefit other than just the human agency of John, I think. 
So John beats Peter in this foot race to the place where they expect Jesus' body to be, right? This is where it's supposed to be, and then it isn't. And then John, he stoops to look in. He sees the linen grave clothes, but he does not enter. And there's a whole thing we could do about the way it's folded that has significance in John. Uh, and then we get Peter, and Peter does what Peter would do, right? He doesn't stop at the entrance and look in. Peter's Peter, so he just runs in the tomb. Now, I wouldn't run in a tomb, but I'm not Peter. And so he, he runs right in the tomb, verse 6, and he sees the grave clothes and the face cloth, which have been, again, folded up, placed by themselves, which is a sign that the person's coming back. And at that point, the beloved disciple, John, also enters the tomb, and in verse 8, it says this. Then the other disciple, and again, who had reached the tomb first, just remember, Peter, I beat you there, but you went in first, also went in and he saw and believed. So John is saying, after I got to the tomb first and I saw the tomb uh, empty and I, and I went in, I saw that it was empty and then I believed. Now, what did he believe? What was this moment for him? What, what, what did the beloved disciple John see in that tomb uh, that convinced him that Jesus had been raised from the dead. And, and, and verse 9 makes this clear. Listen now to 8 and 9 together again. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Now, here's what's significant. In just a little bit, John's going to tell us, as we've been saying over and over and over, why he wrote this book, that we might believe. And here he experiences his own purpose in why he wrote this book for us that he saw and he believed. And so John, when writing this gospel account, he, he then explains that to this point, he and Peter, and I would assume he means uh, the other disciples as well, had not yet processed the Old Testament sort of indications that it was necessary for Jesus to rise from the dead. For whatever reason, and, and I know we've experienced this too, where you have that moment where things click into place in your head. That's what's happening here. So what scripture had they not yet understood? Well, there's a bunch, but we saw back in John 2, and remember, John's not chronological, so John 2 is actually close in time here. We saw in John 2, 17, that the disciples remembered Psalm 69, which says, zeal for your house will consume me. And we saw that Jesus had invoked the visitation of God's wrath at the destruction of the temple and the three-day sort of picture that we, we saw in verse two, or chapter 2, verse 19, where Jesus said, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. Jesus, that John then explains in uh, chapter 2, verse 22, that Jesus said, John says this, when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So now here in John 20, John doesn't cite a particular scripture but we see this moment happen where he remembers and he believes. He, he, this is likely John doesn't give us a specific passage because it's, it's broad. He, he has in view a broad theme and, and many motifs and ideas from the Old Testament, uh, such as those that are related to the, the pattern of the Exodus, right? Like that whole pattern is a, is a motif for seeing your whole Bible. And so, uh, we, John sees that in the death and the resurrection and the fulfillment of the righteous, suffering, servant, shepherd, prophet. 
that's all over the place in the Old Testament. I think someday it would be great for us to do a series through Exodus and really do a lot of that work. There's so much there. And so Jesus had taught that, that all the scriptures were about him. You may remember that text where Jesus says, you, you, you go to the scriptures in vain because you don't realize they're about me. and You're missing the point. And this is, I think, what's clicking now in John's head and his heart as the Holy Spirit works as he remembers his training. And so now we have a spot here where the translation in verse 10 uh, actually doesn't do a great job for us in the ESV. In the ESV, John 20, verse 10 uh, says this, then the disciples went back to their homes. That's actually not what the language really says. The NIV does a better case here where it says the disciples went back to where they are staying. So what's the point in all of this. Why does that matter? Well, since we find the disciples together in one place in chapter 20, in verse 19, further down from where we're going to be today, verse 10 is not indicating that the disciples all broke up at this point, but it's saying that they got back together where they were kind of hiding out at this point. And so this verse seems to indicate that Peter and John, those disciples, returned to them, the other disciples, which again refers to this whole group. And so this is how Honestly, the first resurrection sermon sort of gets preached. This testimony reaches the other disciples. And so what John is doing here is that he's, he's doing like a show and tell in these 10 verses. In the first part of 20, he shows Mary coming first to the tomb and then going and testifying that the body of Jesus is not there. And here's what's really radical about this. The testimony of women was not highly regarded in John's world. And so if someone were inventing a fictional account to deceive people, they certainly wouldn't say that the first one was a woman who went and told the other guys. That's not how it would have worked in the ancient Greco-Roman world. This is a huge part of the Christian story, that women were the first witnesses. And in John, Mary is the first witness to the resurrection. On top of that, if again, if an account was being invented, we probably wouldn't cast the disciples in such bad light. Faithless, forgetful guys who just can't get it together. But, but that's what we have. And again, that's encouraging because that's kind of what I am. It, it probably wouldn't cast these disciples in, in a bad light. They're, they're surprised to find that Jesus said he would do what he would, said he would do, that Jesus did what he said he would do, right? Rise from the dead. They're very slow to understand Jesus in the scriptures. It doesn't like click right away. There, there's a... It's a paradox that validates the historicity of the resurrection here. Uh, Mary, a woman, is a weak witness in this world. Peter and John, they're surprised, they're slow to understand. Their witness is weak, and, right? If they went, if in a, even in our modern day, if Peter and John went into the courtroom like, ah, I don't really remember what he said, I don't really know what it means, but, he, but here's what I think, that wouldn't be a strong witness. They don't come off as great champions of the faith, but as eyewitness testimony, that actually gives it the ring of truth. Because man, who would make this up? Who would say it was a couple guys who couldn't get it together and a woman who found it first? And so John shows exactly what happened in order to let these sort of testimonial facts just stand for themselves. The disciples are as elated by the resurrection of Jesus as they had been crushed by the crucifixion which they shouldn't have been, right? They should have known, what, oh, the crucifixion happened. All right, so the resurrection is coming. But it, the evidence is showing us it's not really how they responded. And so this turning point is really 
on display in the Gospel of John. This is, what we're reading about is the fulcrum of human history. Like this is the most important event in the history of history. And we have the testimony of those who were there that day. The moment when a crucified failure is actually revealed to be a triumphant king. The resurrection of Jesus is testimony to us and to the world that that once and for all, he has triumphed over death and sin. That the debt has been paid and nothing will ever be what it was before that. That's true for the world in a big picture sense, and it's true individually for you and for me, that if we know the resurrection, we trust in the resurrection, that is a fulcrum in our life after which nothing is the same. The Holy Spirit indwells. We're brought into the the fellowship of the church and nothing about us is the same when we trust in Jesus and his death and resurrection. But let's keep going. So we see Peter and John, they leave the tomb, they go to the other disciples, Uh, But then we see Mary linger at the tomb in verse 11. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And so she sees two angels where the body of Jesus had been, one at the head and one at the feet. And I want you to pick up on this picture from John, because it's as though the place where the body of Jesus was laid in the tomb has become, if you know your Old Testament, the mercy seat. That, that this has become the holy of holies and the temple is now the world. This is uh, cherubim on either side of the mercy seat and now we see angels on either side of the empty grave. This is an allusion back to what we see in Exodus 25 verses 10 through 20 specifically, right? Once a year on the day of atonement and if you're not familiar, atonement means the debt has been paid that was incurred for sin. So when you Sin, you incur a debt to God, and atonement is God paying your debt in full by the blood of Jesus. But before Jesus, there was a day of atonement, and on that day, the high priest of Israel would uh, took the blood of a goat or a bull slain, and he entered the most holy place, and he sprinkled the blood over the mercy seat, and he made atonement for the mercy seat, cleansing the tabernacle. This happened once a year. This is in Leviticus 16. I know it's all of our favorite book in our Bible reading plans. Every like February, we get to Leviticus. And we're like, yes, Leviticus. Now, these two angels stationing themselves where they do uh, seem to be fulfillment of the mercy seat where the true blood of the atonement, blood that was better than any goat, boat, bull or goat, was spilled, blood that cleanses what the tabernacle and the temple actually symbolize, which is the world. That God is coming into the world, making atonement for sin, rescuing us when we could not rescue ourselves. Jesus is bringing into the world the full and final atonement that the blood of bulls and goats brought into the temple was just a shadow of. That the sacrificial system in the Old Testament was a shadow of what Jesus would do. And now that Jesus has done it, the blood of bulls and goats is no longer required. Now here's why this matters. If it's correct that the angels are placing themselves where they do in order to show that the empty tomb has fulfilled the role of the most holy place, then when Mary looks in and when Mary interacts with them, she is going where only the high priest should be able to go. 
under the old covenant. It's as though this scene enacts the way that the crucified body of Jesus has actually done what the scriptures say and opened up the new and the better way for us to go through the veil, that's Hebrews 10, and we now can enter the presence of God. We can live quorum Deo in the face of God. And it's Mary Magdalene who does it. I love that. Whereas the high priest had to do what exactly was prescribed so that he would not die, Leviticus 16, 13. The death and resurrection of Jesus have made it so that Mary interacts with these angels in total safety. We have no evidence that she went and like cleansed herself ceremonially or any of that. She just walks in the tomb and sees these angels. They ask, why is she weeping? And her response is showing she still hasn't processed the resurrection but is thinking that the body of Jesus has been moved. Look at verse 13. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. So she's still not processing this. Then she turns, in verse 14, having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Now, this is seemingly would indicate to us that the the resurrected body of Jesus was more like a human body, right? Like Jesus didn't become an angel. You're not becoming an angel when you die. Your relatives that have passed on had not, haven't become angels. Their human body is the body that God gave them and the body that God said is good. And their resurrected body will be the body that God intends. And so Mary interacts with um, th- this person who she doesn't recognize as a human, right? What does she think he is? She starts talking with Jesus in verses 14 and 15. She thinks he's the gardener. And this isn't some metaphor for Jesus being the great gardener. This is like she just thinks he's the gardener. And so Jesus asks her, why are you weeping? Who are you seeking? And John tells us again that Mary thought he was the gardener. She asked if maybe he moved the corpse. Verse 15, Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, not seeing him as an angel, right? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I will take him away. And then Jesus does in verse 16 what he always does with unbelief. He speaks our name and we recognize his voice. He says, my sheep will hear my name and they will know my voice. Look at verse 16. He doesn't cause his glory to manifest. He doesn't have a theophany with Mary. He simply speaks her name into her unbelief. And when she does so, she recognizes him. And it says in verse 16, Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher, now, John is translating that because if you remember John 1, he's writing this to those who might not be Jewish. So he's translating that Aramaic. And so this term, though, this, this Jewish term, Rabboni or Rabbi, which he then translates, seems it's adding a note of devotion, of intimacy, of, of relationship that uh, Jesus has with Mary. And then the reply of Jesus to Mary in verse 17, it's kind of weird, like when you first read it, it seems like Jesus is kind of maybe literally holding her at arm's length, right? Like, don't, don't grab on to me. And he tells Mary not to cling to him, which all of us would want to do in that moment. Like, oh my gosh, it's Jesus hug, right? That's, that would be my response. But he tells Mary not to cling on him because he has not yet ascended to the Father. He, he seems to be saying that his work is not quite yet done. 
And so before long, he will ascend. So Mary should not think that she could hold on to him in a permanent way. Now, remember, Jesus told his disciples, I'm going and another one is coming. That's the helper. And it's better for you if I go. That's what this is connected to. And so he wants Mary to understand that there's one more part of the, and this may be kind of one of the things that when we look at our sort of stream of Christianity, we, we, this is a little bit of a weakness. We talk a lot about the death and the resurrection of Jesus, but the ascension is super important because without the ascension, the Holy Spirit doesn't come and empower us. And so he sends Mary, notice the language, to his brothers, which, which why is that important? Well, these men had left him. They were faithless, and yet he calls them brothers. He holds no hostility to them, and he elevates their status once again. They have gone from slaves to friends to brothers. And the same is true for you and I. The disciples of Jesus abandoned him. Peter denied him. And nevertheless, he sends Mary to them, and he calls them brothers. In 15.15, in John 15.15, he, he said again that they were no longer slaves but friends. And then here in John 20, 17, he draws them in even a little bit closer and says, you're now brothers. And with this, and this is super important for us as well, he says that his father is their father and that his God is their God. And so here is the mind-blowing reality of what the resurrection means for us. The death and the resurrection of Jesus have made it so that those who trust in Jesus share the same standing before God as Jesus himself. Jesus, if you have faith in him, is your brother. He is the firstborn, but you're in the family. You have the same access to God that Jesus has. There is no more priesthood. My prayers for you don't count any more than yours do. We have the same access to God that Jesus does. Jesus is literally our big brother. And he brings us to the family. And so some of our longings, if we'll think about them, go deeper than our ability to put them into words, right? We have uh, what one commentator was talking about and called them pre-reflective desire, pre-conceptual yearnings. Things that we love and long for at a gut level that we don't even quite like articulate. Uh, and, and they can be there and maybe we'll think about them and kind of put words around them. But there are things that we desire that we don't even put words to. We, we all have these kind of desires. And, and, and I'll just say in my own heart, this is a simple example. I notice that it's this time of the year because the leaves are changing and the weather cools down that I get all sorts of like nostalgic longings for some weird utopia that I have constructed in my mind where I'm like, it's a beautiful fall day. I'm in a coffee shop with a great coffee and a nice book. That's like utopia for some reason to me. Hey, it's weird, I know, but that's me. But those are those kind of longings and desires on kind of a surface level. But now take that kind of desire to a much more root level, deep level, a desire that I actually think is pretty universal to human desire to be deeply connected to the life of some transcendent deity. We may not even be able to put into words that we want to be connected to God. We may say things like transcendence or the life of the divine, and I'm not in some new age thing. It's just what people, the language people have. This is a think, an ultimate human desire. In the Christian tradition that we come from, we would articulate it like this. 
We have a desire to have the standing, to have standing before God the Father that Jesus himself has. That we want to be made right with God. We want to have a relationship with God. And Jesus, in this text and in his death and resurrection, is providing that. And so for the risen Jesus to say these words to these faithless, forgetful disciples, for him to say these words that they are now brothers, that they have the same standing before the Father that he himself has, and that the Father is their Father. That's the word Jesus speaks to us out of his resurrection. God the Father is your Father. My Father is your Father. And and my God, who you thought you could never get to, is now your God, and you are his people. This operates at a level that arguments cannot penetrate. I can't argue you into wanting to love God as your father. It's just in there. And you may not even have words for it yet. And I think these statements in John by Jesus and by John are meant to to kind of grab us by the gut, right? To grab us at a visceral level to show us that we are, if we have faith in Jesus, we are accepted. We are brought into the family of God, that we are his Babies, we are his children. Now, I love the quote from Timothy Keller that says, who can in the middle of the night ask the king for a glass of water? His kids, right? And that's us. By the death and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus, you have been brought into the family of God. And all you have to do to live into that resurrection life is just accept that gift, submit to that life and live into him. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you for this time to come together. And for those of us who came in feeling a little low today to hopefully be encouraged just by seeing these faces around us, by receiving community in the many ways we receive it through through just a smile and a hello. And we thank you that we can remember that that community is built on this reality that you have called us, Jesus, you have called us brothers and sisters and children. We are your family now. And that nothing that we feel, nothing that we experience can change that. That your blood and your resurrection is more powerful than any human experience and it draws us together into your people. That we who were once not a people are now your people. That those of us who felt like we were far off are now brought in close. That you are now our God and we are your people and We look forward to the day when you return and we dwell with you. And I pray that as we go out from here that we would begin living now as if we dwell with you because in a way we do, even as we go out from here. We pray this in Jesus' name by the power of you, the Holy Spirit, to the glory of our Father God.